Imagine what would happen if your childhood suddenly became a true crime headline. How would you go on after a trauma where you lost nearly your entire family to violence? Well, today, let's investigate just how one woman did that. Hey, everybody, I want to welcome you to The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison, and I'm here to share with you what God is teaching me about faith while I work this amazing job. And the longer that I do what I do, the more it makes me want to cheer on other believers who are interested in becoming a different kind of PI, a person of impact. And you can jump into this world with me. I know you want to. And you can make a difference in how crime affects your community. Don't worry if you don't know how to get started, because we're going to talk about one practical step, just one, to get involved after we dive into today's case. So let's go. This is Season 3, Episode 17. Our case this week is from the book, I Am Jessica, by Jamie Collins. And our guest is Michelle Niedert, and she's the Clinical Director of Community Counseling Associates, the host of Raising Mentally Healthy Kids podcast, and the author of Make Up Your Mind, Unlock Your Thoughts, Transform Your Life. So let's just get started by investigating the details of how nine-year-old Jessica Pelly lost nearly her entire family. Her life changed forever on April 29, 1989. But even back before that, she'd had a very tough life growing up in Toledo, Ohio. She was a daddy's girl. She loved her father dearly, and she was devastated when he died suddenly when she was just five years old. What she saw as a stable world in the little yellow house where she lived with her mom and dad and her two younger sisters was just gone. And then a less than a year after that, her mother took her and her sisters to Florida to live with her new husband. His name was Bob, and Jessica really didn't like him. She just wanted her daddy back. She didn't really want a new older brother or sister either, but she got them. And Jackie and Jeff, Bob's two kids, they didn't really seem especially excited about the situation either, and who can blame them? They had just lost their mother. Jeff especially seemed very troubled by the blending of these two families. And then just as Jessica was getting settled into life in Florida, Bob was offered a job as a minister in tiny Lakeville, Indiana. So her world was turned upside down yet again as the family moved so that Bob could take this new job. That was the third big change in less than two years for this poor girl. The stress of trying to unite five children who had each lost a parent while maintaining the facade of being this perfect preacher's family was really getting to them all. Jeff especially started acting out and I get it, all teenagers are going to do that to a certain extent, but he was really doing it to a greater degree than most. He picked on Jessica constantly, but whenever she would tell her mother or tell Bob, pleading for their help, they just didn't believe her. Everybody went to family counseling, but it just didn't seem to help. Jeff just got angrier and began to act out even more. He even got his car taken away as a punishment right before the prom. Now, Jessica had plans for that weekend, too, and those plans saved her life. I hope when you're done listening to the podcast, you'll take just a minute to visit my website. You'll be able to find links to blog posts. You can sign up for my email list. You can look at merchandise out on the store tab. You can book me as a speaker 
or let me know about a case that you're interested in. Just go to www.theunlovelytruth.com. That awful, awful weekend when Jessica's family was killed, she had gone to spend two nights with a friend. Her stepsister Jackie was also gone visiting a friend at college. And when Sunday morning rolled around, it was very apparent to everyone that something was very wrong. Remember, Bob was a pastor, but he wasn't at the church. Nobody in his family was. So concerned church members went to the house. It was right next door. It was a parsonage type home that a lot of churches used to have. Nobody answered when they knocked on the door. So they got the keys from the church and they went in. They found Bob on the floor, obviously dead, and backed out very, very quickly to call 911. And when first responders got there, they also found Jessica's mom, Dawn, her sisters, Janelle and Jolene. They were all dead. As investigators looked around, nothing seemed to be missing and there weren't any signs of forced entry. Jessica returned to her home to the site of police cars surrounding it. Can you even imagine? And when we talk about ripple effects of victims, the poor mom who brought Jessica home after spending the night with her daughter and had to explain to Jessica what had just happened. Jessica spent decades dealing with anger and grief and abandonment and just missing her family. Now, of course, her 17-year-old stepbrother, Jeff, was a suspect from the very, very beginning. I told you he had been acting out. He had a history of shoplifting and theft, but nothing violent. It was that theft that had caused him to be grounded from taking his car to the prom. Could that really have driven him to murder nearly his entire family? And of course, as a nine-year-old, nobody was telling Jessica any of this. In fact, they really weren't telling Jessica much of anything. In a well-meaning attempt to shield her, they really kind of took away from her the ability to understand and process what had happened. And so her tough little life didn't get any easier as she was shuffled from relative to relative, and eventually she ended up in foster care. No one seemed to know how to deal with the sadness, the anger, the loneliness, and all the other competing emotions that Jessica didn't know how to deal with either. When she was 15 years old, she hadn't seen Jeff in years, but he reached out to her and asked her to come visit him and his wife in Florida. She did, and they seemed nice. But Jessica thought it was really odd that one of the very first questions he asked when he first saw her was, so who do you think did it? Meaning, who killed our family and murdered our childhoods? She wasn't sure what to make of this question, and she told him that she thought that it was his father, that it was Bob. And rather than upsetting him, this really seemed to kind of put his mind at ease. They had a good visit and exchanged a few emails over the next few years, But Jessica would not see her brother again for 12 more years. In those 12 years, she got married, had children of her own, and learned that she loved working with kids with behavioral issues. Because of everything she'd been through, she felt like she understood them. And she was good at what she did. That gave her confidence and purpose. Her life was still tough, but it was getting better. Then, in 2002, two detectives showed up at her house. It had been 13 years since that horrible day when she'd lost nearly her entire family. But as she says in the book, there aren't enough years in a lifetime to keep a victim from wanting to obtain justice for those who were murdered. And she did want that. On August 10th of that year, Jeff was arrested and charged with four counts of murder. 
Police knew it was not going to be an easy case. They'd never found the murder weapon, and things like fingerprints were useless because Jeff lived there with the rest of his family. But authorities put together a good case, and Jeff Pally was found guilty on four counts of murder and sentenced to 160 years in prison. He appealed, of course, and the decision was actually reversed and remanded back to the trial court to be tried again. But then the Indiana Supreme Court reversed the appeals court's decision and reinstated his original conviction. It gets so confusing. And really, for victims, it can be like being traumatized over and over and over again. In the years since, Jessica has reconnected with extended family members and worked really, really hard to make herself as whole as she possibly could. Writing this book was a big part of that. It was published in 2018, and incredibly, since then, there have been developments in her brother's post-conviction relief process. Papers have been filed claiming that prosecutors suppressed a supposed witness and didn't let the jury hear about a woman who claimed that Bob Pelly told her that the mob was going to be after him and his family for mistakes he'd made before he became a pastor. We're going to have to keep our eyes on the news to see how this one turns out. But for now, we're going to talk to this week's guest, and we're going to find out how we can help people who are overcoming traumas of their own. I am so happy to welcome Michelle Niedert to the podcast today. I know she has some amazing insights for us. So welcome, Michelle. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here because I am a crime junkie. So it's kind of fun to find a faith-based person of what I spend a lot of my entertainment time on. I love to hear that because so many people act like maybe those are things that we should, you know, steer away from. And I hear the the argument, you know, whatever's true, whatever's lovely, think on that. So I'm not going to think about this. But to me, the truth and the loveliness in this is that you're doing it to educate yourself so that you can help others. Absolutely. And I think uh, people miss a lot of times that a lot of these people's stories have real themes of hope and redemption and recovery in them. And I think when we don't have the opportunity to realize that the crime is not the end of the story. There's so much more to that. There are stories of people forgiving others of things, what we would think of as the unforgivable and people recovering from loss that we could not imagine recovering from. I think that provides a lot of hope and inspiration for our culture and for others who maybe have been through maybe a different type of trauma. Um, but especially those who have experienced some type of traumatic event in their life where they've lost control, to watch people who have had no control regain control over their lives and the rest of the story, I think, is so fascinating to me. Well, I'm so glad you brought that up because I think that's an aspect that we don't always look at. And so why don't we just kick things off by letting you, as the expert, define and I know it's different for everybody, but give us kind of a general idea of what we're talking about when we say trauma. Oh, wow. That is a, that's a hard one because I think that there are, I think our culture likes to stick with the big T traumas. So that is something unexpected that hits us from 
And it really creates an impact in our lives. But if we use a definition like that, there could be little T traumas, as some of us like to call them in there as well. So a lot of times when we say the word trauma, we think of war veterans, we think of crime victims, especially rape, sexual abuse, childhood sexual abuse. We think of, I think of, which everybody may not, a medical experience with trauma. I have a lot of people who experience medical trauma that come into our offices who are either the patient or they may be the parent or the loved one of that person. It is, that is a very helpless place to be in. But we can also have layers of trauma, like bullying is traumatic if it's true bullying. Bullying is not one time a kid calling another kid a name. Bullying is a repetitive behavior of one or more kids towards another child or group that becomes destructive. It's over and over and over again. And there are layers to that. Now, I do think there can be immediate trauma in our schools. I used to be a school crisis counselor, and I think there can be, you know, if somebody shoves your head in a toilet, you may have an issue with water or toilets for a while. Flushing may be something that tenses your body up. And that's what we have to realize, that trauma is something that doesn't just happen to our brains, it happens to our body too. And we have so much research on that now with the body keeps score and the body remembers. And those of us, I'm an EMDR therapist, and we're looking at also getting trained in ART, which is accelerated resolution therapy. Those types of therapies are trying to help the mind and the body reintegrate and process through the trauma that may get stuck. That is so amazing. I've I've always been a believer in the power of stories as well to be healing. And I was just really, really taken by the fact that in the introduction to this book, the author, who happened to be a cousin of the the woman who experienced the loss of her family here, she asked her, why are you wanting to bring this up, to relive it, to tell this story? Because I know people will, will be wondering about that. And she had an amazing answer, and she talked about how she wanted to be seen. And so with the the patients that you work with, how important is it for them in overcoming their trauma for people to see them for who they are, not what the trauma was, but to see them? I think there is a real difference between those two, that no one wants to be known as the child whose mom died. For example, even in a case of like uh, my nieces, both their parents died within two years and they wanted to change schools because they were the kids whose parents had died. That's a hard label to walk on. Um, We had a situation in one of my middle schools when I was a counselor where a child drowned at a party and that girl ended up wanting to move, not to run away from a difficult situation, but she didn't want to spend the rest of her life being the girl who's had the party where the kid died at her house. And so those types of traumatic events, we don't want them to define us. Those are moments. Those are snapshots of our lives. Those, those are defining in some ways as far as they change. I always say this as I'm training new counselors. Trauma impacts the way we view our God, ourselves, and our world. So it's going to impact us and our viewpoint. And then we have to work through that. What if that is truth? What if that is lie? That's going to have a negative impact on us. And then there is a process of, I don't think we want to relive the story. That can create some secondary trauma that's unnecessary. 
We want to keep our clients grounded and have them look back at what has occurred. And to be able, especially if it's a childhood event, we want that wise mind, that more adult mind looking back integrated as they're looking at what's occurred in their life. And, and what, what can they take from that experience and learn from it? I think people do want to be seen as more than just the, a person involved. I don't, I don't even like to word, use the word victim because it's so defining, but a person involved in a traumatic event or a crime. They, they're more to that. That person loves and is a sibling and a cousin and an aunt, and they're, they're a colleague. And they're a, if they're in a Christian community, they're a brother or sister in Christ. There's just more to them. I also think sometimes it's so helpful for people to, whether it's published or not, write out their story because there's a therapeutic element to getting what's on the inside, on the outside of you. But I think also it validates us in some ways. It allows our story to be our story because there are times, especially I even looked at this book and some of the reviews of the book that you're using, family members are challenging some of that. And that's hard. And then you feel very invalidated because here's the thing, you and I could watch a traffic accident occur and we're going to have some real differences on how we describe that. And as we work with, I just dealt with a situation uh, this month where it was a traumatic incident in the family involving some of the family members. And we first went around and talked about what each person experienced and what they thought and they felt through that experience. And we gave permission for that to look different for each person in the family. And I think too, when it's a crime, that a lot of people are kind of frozen and they're afraid to um, talk about it with the person that's experienced it, especially at church, especially if it's maybe a sexual crime. You know, we, we don't want to put words to it. We don't want to talk about it. We we're uncomfortable, but is that a good idea? to just bury that and move on as opposed to acknowledging it and letting the person who's experienced us, excuse me, experienced it, guide us in how they want to deal with it? As a previous minister on staff at a church, I would say there's a both and to this. There's an appropriate setting for discussions. And I think we need to be aware of that. And I don't think that means it doesn't happen in the church. I think it needs to occur in the church, but it needs to occur in a safe place in the church. It needs to occur with safe people in the church, and it needs to occur within the right setting that's actually therapeutic and healing for that person. Because I have had clients who have really struggled with people asking them lots of questions in a public setting that, again, that's not how they want to be defined. And so that, like, for example, a SIDS mom, that's a terrible trauma if your baby's died. And sometimes there is a did they really die of SIDS or was there something else that's occurred with this postpartum mom? She may not want to discuss that at Bunko. She may want to just go have fun and leave that behind. And then there's a place. And I think what we do is we follow the lead of the person whose story it is to bring that up and, for, and then to help them, if they're not wise, where they're bringing it up, to help them find safe places within our community to receive support and validation and, and help in that process. Because there's also a place not to traumatize smaller children and make them fearful. You know, there's just some, there's some wisdom and all that that has to be considered. 
And I think that is where we allow that person to do a lot of leading and, and are hopeful that they're wise in that. I love how you've segued right into the next thing I was going to ask you. There are great ways and places to address things. There are terrible ways and places to address things. So help us navigate that and know that even if we're, you know, totally pure in heart and we're really trying to help, help us not, you know, step our foot in it and do things that are not helpful or are even counterproductive. So I guess the easy way to maybe say that would be, what should we not be doing? I think the biggest thing the Christian community struggles when it comes to talking with people about trauma and loss, because a lot of trauma involves loss, is we are too quick to go to hope and heaven and redemption and not allow somebody to sit in their pain. And I think a better response sometime than, oh, but they're now with Jesus. Isn't that great? Well, no, I just experienced a traumatic loss and I wasn't ready to say goodbye and I'm missing them horribly. That's going to leave a person feeling very invalidated, even though they're a person of faith and they believe it too. It doesn't diminish your faith to miss someone. It doesn't diminish your, diminish your faith to experience pain. Jesus experienced pain. He drew away from the crowd and dealt with that pain at times. I think about, I was listening this week to the story of him at, when, when he found out John had died and he'd been killed. You know, he, did, he didn't say, well, John's with God now with my father and I'm going to see him soon and it's all going to be good. He withdrew from the crowd and went off by himself. He knew what was coming. He knew how hard this was. And I think part of this is validating the hard is a very important part of this is to not let somebody sit forever in the hard, but I let us professionals decide when it's been too long. I like to joke <laughs> about, you know, um, don't decide that for somebody. Let somebody, let them decide and let the professionals decide if they're in a loop and they're stuck, but validate the hard. And then the most beautiful question you can ask anybody who's gone through tra trauma loss, traumatic loss is how can I serve you? How can I, how can I help you this week? How could I su support you? And a lot of times, maybe not even make it an open-ended question, but give them some options. Because when you're stuck in that loop, you can't really think of the help that you need. So it might be better to say, could I bring you a meal? Could I send you an Uber Eats gift card? Could I come watch your kids so you could go somewhere this week? What would be a practical way I could be Jesus in skin to you in this moment of difficulty for you. I love that. And I want to remind people too, it's great to be there for people at the beginning. It's even better to be there as things progress because, you know, a loss, I think we can recognize there's going to be the first time they're not there for their birthday or a holiday or they've missed a wedding. You think of crime victims, they've got to go through the judicial process, which is very cold, very sterile, and it can, it can be re-traumatizing. And so what would you say to people about that being, being kind of an ongoing support? Yeah, it's funny because everyone I've worked with who's been involved in a crime or a traumatic loss, whether it's been a suicide 
or a true crime situation, the judicial system's tough because a lot of times they don't even want, like, for example, we've had some cases where they don't want the crime victim to even go through EMDR or some type of healing process until after the trial because they want the impact. They want, they want the jury and the judge to see the impact fully. So in a way they almost want, I'm like, are you kidding me? We're going to hold this person in pain so their pain can be more real. Yes, because we need this in order to get a solid conviction. And then I have to tell my client, that's up to you. You know, you don't have to do what the DA says here, but you have to decide when you want to resolve some of this trauma for yourself. So there are tough situations like that. And what I, what I believe that creates very often is a delayed response. So some of the aspects of trauma, like shock, are going to be there and they might even sit longer because there's a whole nother layer that comes from conviction and sentencing in the cases I've seen at least. In fact, I've worked with families where there's been an ongoing situation where maybe somebody's been like, there's no body, for example. And then you've got a case that's going to last a long time because finally they're going to pull the plug and decide, okay, we're going to move forward anyway. So you could spend years waiting for the judicial system to even begin And they're working through those layers, but then there are new layers that are uncovered. I like to think of it like onion. Like I think of it as like that blooming onion at Outback or just an onion and you're peeling off these layers. And it's not uncommon if you're dealing with anything that's requiring you to do extra tasks and be involved in a system that's new to you. Most of my widows who have a sudden loss of their spouse and their kids are under 10, they don't even start grieving till the second year. Because they're too busy with social security and probate. And are we staying in the house? Are we not staying in the house? And are the kids okay? Do I have their therapy? And then as those layers unfold, they get to their layers. And so I agree with you. I think it's, I think the the worst thing we can do is think that it's been a long enough. You should be past this. Um, there, there are aspects that are past, but I know even in grieving my sister-in-law and her husband, There are moments like you talked about, weddings and graduations. We had a whole new layer when her first child graduated last year. And I was so sad she wasn't with us. And I could hear her, you know, her funny comments and her snarky comments and all of that. And that's true even more so with crime victims because we knew that was coming as as they died of cancer. And it was hard, but we didn't have the added issues of somebody else caused this to happen. Right. That's, and it's amazing to me how many families I've seen be re-victimized on social media. Online trolls who want to jump in and, well, this wouldn't have happened if they didn't do this or, or whatever ugly thing they're saying. Because a lot of families, you know, they might put a memorial on social media to their loved one or if it's an open case, they might be asking for information. And the fact that people would be ugly to them is just beyond me. So, you know, it, let's say you know someone. I heard it said so well today. Funny, I was listening to a crime podcast today. <laughs> and, and one of the hosts, one of her family members has never is missing and has never, they've never found out what happened. And so I think she's super passionate about it because of that. And here's what she said, and I loved it. This person may have chosen to use drugs or be in a less safe environment, but they didn't choose to become a crime victim. 
Nobody makes that choice. And I love the way she said that because I think we can lose sight of that, especially those of us who are like, well, that's what you get for being in the wrong place at the right time. No, no, no girl, no, no, like for example, a lot of the crimes I deal with, no college girl thinks I'm going to drink too much tonight and a couple boys are going to rape me. That that's not a thought. We think we're invincible and we don't even know sometimes when we're young and foolish where that line line is. And so nobody asked to be a victim of a crime. And I yes. think that's something we have to remember. Do we sometimes make and there is a component of I made, you know, a lot of times when I work with people, I made an unwise cho- wise choice. And now I'll ask them, so did you deserve this? Is that what you're thinking? Because you have made an unwise choice? No. That, and, you know, sometimes I have to get them to talk back to me to say, and I'll say, say it to me. No, I did not deserve this. I drank too much. I didn't ask to be raped. And it amazes me. So many of us forget how many unwise choices have we made where we just had a better outcome. Absolutely. Because these are odds. These are odds. And and this is where, unfortunately, you've lost with the odds. There are lots of kids. I'm, I'm going to go talk to a public school PTA Tuesday. There are lots of kids whose parents don't monitor, don't monitor their social media as well as they should. And some of these kids have had interactions with unsafe people. And they're, but they're still going to, they're going to, they're going to escape. And then there are going to be some kids as I work with our um, crime apprehension unit with our county, you know, who are the unfortunate ones that this guy really is. And he's not just going to have a chat. He's going to show up in our county from another state and see if he can groom and actually capture someone. Nobody asked to be, no kid asked for that. No parent who was busy that night and didn't, or maybe turned off the controls for the kid for them to do a homework assignment and forgot to turn them back on. I've seen cases like that. They didn't ask for that. And that's where I think we have to be, we have to break this myth that it couldn't happen to me. I've, I've been in a parking lot at night by myself. I'm not asking to be hurt. I just happen to be by myself in the parking lot that night. Somebody else may be in that same place and end up hurt. Such a great point. And I'm so glad you brought that up. I want everybody to know that you have a blog, you speak, you've got a podcast. So tell us a little bit more about those, where people can find you um, and just, um, you know, what kind of help you can give. Well, and one thing I don't even have the access to yet, I just finished a class It's a, for coaches on integrating trauma and fa- integrating faith and trauma-informed care for coaches. Nice. And I'm excited about that. I do, you can find me at yourmentalhealthcoach.com. And then if you're in the Texas area, our therapy center is communitycounselingassociates.com. I've been a licensed professional counselor for 25 years, and we counted them up this year. I've trained over 50 therapists, Christian counselors around the area. So that's that's a huge number. That's kind of amazing. Um, I have one book out for girls, uh, Loved and Cherished, and it's really to give them that sense of security. so that they will be less likely to struggle with the performance and the social anxiety that can lead to depression in our culture. Because girls don't read nonfiction. They just don't. They don't read nonfiction self-help, but they'll read a devotional a little bit each day. And then I have a new book that's releasing for women or has just been released called Make Up Your Mind. And it's about overcoming what a lot of trauma victims and survivors experience is this, um, the mindsets of feeling helpless, like one is on overcoming the helpless mindset. One is on overcoming the 
scarcity mindset, the victim mindset, the depressive mindset, the angry mindset. And that's a real part of trauma recovery is that anger, a healthy part of it. So we're looking at this, integrating the best practices in mental health in my counselor's corner along with faith. And just like you're doing in this with with the crime dynamic, we're doing with mental health and faith in the book. I love it. I love it. And everybody needs to make sure you check out the show notes because I will have links to all of this stuff so you can check out these fabulous, fabulous resources. Well, Michelle, you do amazing work. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate the chance to help people, especially in the community and in the church community, really understand how important their support and treatment of someone who has been through a a, a traumatic experience, whether it's a crime or something else, really is to that person as they walk through that. Awesome. Well, if you know anybody that is struggling with these kind of issues, please share this podcast with them so that they can be encouraged, they can check out the resources, and uh, hopefully it'll help some people. Awesome. Thanks again. Bye, Michelle. Recovering from trauma is not easy. And the process looks different for everybody. But if you or a loved one is walking through the healing process right now, I want to give you some encouragement from a psalm of praise, specifically Psalm 147, verse 3. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. I can't even imagine how hard this kind of trauma would be to heal from or how much time it might take. But if you're listening, I want you to know God wants you to no longer be held down by experiences that have hurt you and maybe even continue to hurt you. There's help and there's hope. And that's where the rest of us come in because God so often works through you and works through me to help others. And I don't pretend to be an expert in helping trauma victims, but I've given you access in the show notes to someone who is. So if you wanna reach out to help someone by sharing what you've learned today, Here's something I want you to think about. Ask them first if it's okay for you to share some support resources that you found. Then let them choose if they want to or are ready to use those resources. I know that it can be very easy for me to sound bossy when I really want to sound helpful. And trauma victims need to know that we respect their choices about options that we offer them. So please be sure to check out those show notes for links to our guest, Michelle Niedert's resources, and a link to get your copy of a free resource for you on your journey as a PI, a person of impact, when you sign up for my email list. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neocortex and the artwork by Shelby Highland. See you all next time. Thank you for listening to this episode that is part of the Spark Media Network that can now be heard on the Edify app.